you still have writers earning two, sometimes three dollars, uh, five if they're a really big name, a word for print magazines, and then web people being told, oh, we pay three cents a word. It's like, no, because the amount of work is the same and the quality of the writers is often the same. And that to me is infuriating and goes back again to this idea of if you don't demand your worth, no one's going to give it to you. Welcome to the Genius Women podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisiu, a published travel photographer and writer, an entrepreneur and founder of Genius Women. Four years ago, I quit my corporate job to pursue my dreams. And today, I'm on a mission to help other women pursue their creative dreams as well. This is Genius Women, a podcast where we explore living a rich, meaningful, beautiful creative life through in-depth conversations with brave women pursuing their wildest dreams. If you're ready to put your fears and doubts to the side, go after your dreams, and step into your brilliance, you're in the right place. Let's go. I am so excited to start the first season of Genius Women through an interview we did with Ashley Halpern. Ashley is the editor-at-large for Afar Media and the founding editor of The Urbanist, a pop-up travel blog from New York Magazine. Ashley has served as a contributing editor at Condé Nast Traveler, special projects editor at Bon Appetit, strategist editor at New York Magazine, and senior editor at Time Out New York. She's visited more than 65 countries and lectured about travel writing at Stanford University. I think it's safe to say that Ashley has a passion for the world and for telling stories. And in this episode, we get to uncover her incredible drive, confidence, and determination, all the things that we need to have on the creative path. I'm super excited to have Ashley on the show today, and I hope you enjoy this episode. But before we jump into it, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. The Genius Women podcast is available on all major podcasting outlets, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So make sure you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. It helps us so, so much to get the word out about the show. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, please do me a favor and listen to this episode in its entirety. And promise me that at the end, if it was valuable to you, you'll go on your phone or on your computer and leave us a five-star rating and review right then and there while the excitement is fresh. Thank you so, so much. All right, let's jump into it. Ashley, I'm uh, so thrilled and so excited to be welcoming you uh, to our podcast today. I have admired uh, your work for so many years and I loved working with you as well. And so I'm just so thrilled um, to have you here. And I just want to ask you first, how are you doing right now? I'm, I'm good. Surprisingly busy. It's funny. Before COVID, I traveled about half the year and I haven't traveled since March 9th was the last time I was on a plane. And you would think that there's zero work if there's zero travel, but there's so many stories to be told. Um, you just have to do it through armchair reporting and interviews and calls and it's been a lot. And I constantly think of new stories and new angles that I'd like to mine and 
just don't have the time to put together those pitches and get it out there because you're always scrambling to keep up with the last story. Wow. It's amazing to hear that, right? That even in this time, there are so many different opportunities and so many different stories that still need to be told. So uh, I'm so glad to hear that because it's a difficult time for many of us in the storytelling world, in the freelancing world, but I'm really happy to, to hear that. So I want to start where I always start with these interviews, which is I'd love to hear what was Ashley dreaming about as a kid? <laughs> um, I went through several career phases. Uh, for a while, I wanted to be an actress and my parents... Oh, I could totally <laughs> see that. I could totally see that. <laughs> my parents quickly steered me away from that. And then I really wanted to be a veterinarian. We've always had mm. dogs. I love dogs. And... Then my dad was basically like, yeah, you have to pass organic chemistry for that. And I hated math. So then I used to get my mom's, she got a lot of magazines. She had a lot of magazine subscriptions, but she used to get this really thick JCPenney's catalog. And when she was done with it, after the next catalog for the following season had come, she'd give me the old ones and I would cut them up and I would make magazines. Mm -hmm. I would cut apart the whole thing. And they were mostly like fashion magazines. I was sort of emulating the women's magazines that my mom subscribed to. And I put Tyra Banks, because she was a, like an up-and-coming model then, on the cover of every magazine I made at home. <laughs> so I really, really wanted to become a magazine editor at that point. That's incredible, because that's what you are today. And we will cover for sure how that path unfolded for you. But what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? I moved a lot as a kid, um, mm -hmm. almost 40 times, so uh, all over. It was mostly in the South, North Carolina, Florida, Texas, Georgia is where I went to high school, Pennsylvania for a bit, so moved all the time. My dad owned his own businesses, and my mom was an artist, so we had a bit of mobility there, but my mom always had, the grass is always greener on the other side, so the next place will be better. The next place is going to be amazing, and of course, the irony in all that is there is no utopia, but I do think that it really, moving around so much, really planted the seed for travel and makes me a good travel writer and editor because I'm just so used to moving and so adaptable and can quickly get the lay of the land in a new place. Absolutely. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that's a thread for many of us who were in some ways fortunate uh, growing up exposed to so many different areas of the world. I'm a, absolutely the same way. Growing up, I was shipped, as I like to say, I was shipped between Estonia and Kazakhstan, between my mom's house and my grandma's house. So I was shipped back and forth constantly. So I also saw a lot of different areas and how, how people live differently in different areas. And I think that's just such a rich and incredible experience to have as a kid where you understand that there's so many different ways that life can unfold in different cultures and all of that. That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I think it also, your testament to this, it makes you more comfortable I think with strangers and talking to people and just striking up a conversation with new people. I don't know. You're just more adaptable to new situations. I think it's as difficult as it is to move a lot as a kid, as an adult, you realize it gives you the upper hand when it comes to certain types of re reporting, particularly if you want to be in this field. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. So awesome. So you were moving a lot and you were 
creating magazines in your free time <laughs> that nobody read but my mom <laughs> hey you had you had a reader that's you were already halfway there you had a reader well well walk us through then from your childhood and maybe high school and getting into this field of travel journalism that you're in today Sure. So I went to high school in Marietta, Georgia, and I was the editor-in-chief of the yearbook. But it wasn't yearbook the way I'd seen at other schools. It was what we called competitive yearbook. So every year we would travel to the Columbia University's uh, Scholastic Journalism Association, held yearbook competitions. So it was as close to magazine making as you could get at my high school in Georgia. So from there, I went to Syracuse University, the Newhouse School, where I majored in magazine journalism. And then there was a lot of pressure to start your career in New York, but I didn't come from a wealthy family and I couldn't, basically couldn't afford to live in New York on the salaries that people are paid and I couldn't afford to do unpaid internships there. So I lived at home with my family. They lived in Pennsylvania at that point. And I did some internships in Philadelphia, commuting like 45 minutes to an hour every day into the city. I worked at an indie music magazine called Magnet and at Philadelphia City Pages, which was an old alt-weekly that has since folded. So those were my first couple of internships. And I also did a study abroad in London where I interned at BBC's Good Food magazine, which is like the equivalent of Bon Appetit or Food Network magazine. Mm-hmm. And then I, my first job out of college was actually at that indie rock magazine called Magnet. And then I jumped over to City Pages where I'd also had, or City Paper, geez, that's embarrassing, <laughs> City Paper, <laughs> where I became the listings editor. And then I slowly took over like the food and lifestyle sections. And then after working at Alt Weeklies for a while, I finally eventually jumped to New York. And that's something I really tell people who feel the same thing I did, which is all this pressure that you have to be in New York City, that for me, it was better to start in another city that had a more affordable cost of living and get a lot of that kind of grunt work that you have to do early in your career out of the way, get loads and loads of experience. And then when you move to New York, you can come in at a higher salary and a better position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a, actually a, a quite viable path uh, to this. I, I want to actually backtrack a little bit because I feel like we skipped a, a moment sure. there. <laughs> what I'm interested in knowing is that was there a moment where you like where, where you realized, oh, this is what I want to do? Did it really all start in that childhood moment when you were putting together magazines? Or was it something that you more clearly saw down the line, maybe in high school or when you were deciding what to do in college? Yeah, I think it, st- I think it started earlier. It was certainly like cutting up those JCPenney catalogs and making mm-hmm. magazines. I- I'm an only child and my parents don't have extended family. It was basically me and my parents. And I was probably a pretty annoying child, the one who <laughs> <laughs> just is, but why? Like just asking a thousand billion questions about everything. And at some point, Point, one of my parents probably planted, probably my mom planted the seed that like, oh, you should be a journalist. You, you talk too much. <laughs> you ask too many questions. And but high school really started that seeing competitive yearbooks, seeing the amount of work that went into the photography, into the layouts, into what it took to win those competitions was definitely the closest step toward real magazine making that I'd had mm-hmm. in my life. And I was mm-hmm. just like a magazine junkie. I had subscriptions to everything. And when I first started I actually wanted to work at the men's magazines. Back then, Stuff, Maxim, FHM, they were huge in pop culture. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of magazines would not exist today, I don't think, in the political climate. But back then, I thought that they were funny. I thought that they were 
clever. Uh, they were smart in a way, unfortunately, that some of the women's magazines back then weren't. And that really annoyed me about the women's magazines. I wanted, I, I just liked how irreverent the men's magazines were. It wasn't until I did study abroad, you talk about an aha moment. I did a study abroad in London, and that's when I discovered a magazine called Time Out London. Mm. And I could not believe this thing. It was like a Bible to the city. It was everything you would ever want to know about every corner of the city, from shopping to food and drink, the newest restaurant openings, the best theater, the best dance, the best weird off-Broadway kind of stuff you could find. And to me, that was an epiphany, that someone could make sense of a city. And then I came back to the States and eventually discovered Time Out New York. And so I started reading Time Out New York when I didn't live in New York. I would get, mm -hmm. had a subscription to it living in Philadelphia. And even though I couldn't do any of those things, I just loved the way that it ordered a city and made it feel conquerable. Mm -hmm. So I think that's when I first really started to connect the dots that to me, that's what service journalism in the travel sphere is doing all the legwork so other people can just cut to the good stuff. Like I go through so many bad, annoying things that I can weed out and really distill like, if you only have X number of hours in this place or X number of days, here's how you should spend them. Absolutely. First off, the maxim in the time, because I think you, are, you and I are, are the same age. So I totally, I totally get what you're saying. And by the way, Maxim had a huge reach in the former Soviet Union. Did it? I remember buying that magazine when I was like, I don't know, 14 maybe, and <laughs> reading it cover to cover. Yeah. It was a Russian version of it. And I, I agree with you. It was irreverent. It was smart. And I just really enjoyed the perspective that they had. So that's funny. As you were building your career, building your experiences in Philadelphia and in London, did you see women around you that kind of inspired you or that you wanted to follow in their footsteps? Or was it more about, because I don't quite know how that space looked like in that time, but I'd imagine that it was still very male-dominated space. It was very male-dominated. And, and I'm sorry to say that at that period in time, I didn't have any female mentors. Like, mm. I, I looked at these men's jobs and I was like, I could do that. And I could do that better. <laughs> That's really. oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. I didn't understand why some of them had the jobs they did. And I still don't <laughs> to this day. But I, I didn't have a super strong female mentor. Unfortunately, I had some fantastic male mentors who I think also saw not only saw potential in me, but were like, yeah, you could do my job. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And and empowered me to do like I had some fantastic male editors along the way who, if I could come up with an idea, they would give me the platform to execute it. And I really responded to that, to those mm -hmm. opportunities. Two things I want to say there. First off, it's so incredible that you had that opportunity, right? That freedom to pursue ideas, uh, knowing that you have the backing and the platform behind you. That sounds so incredible. And then did I hear you correctly then that, because I'm curious to know where, where you got that confidence to say, hey, I see what the, these people are doing and I could do it better. Because in my own experience and talking to so many women who want to um, enter this field or advance in this field, 
it feels like a lot of us, and by the way, myself included, are going through those issues with confidence, with feeling like maybe we don't have what it takes or we're not as smart with our ideas as, as some others uh, in the field. And so it's a long-winded way to ask that question. Where do you think you got that strong feeling of confidence from? Was it because of your training uh, and education? Was it the mentors that you got along the way? A combination of all of it, something else? Just let's unpack that a little bit. I think it probably goes back earlier to one, being an only child, you have to be really creative. You have to entertain yourself, especially when your parents won't engage you. When your parents are like, enough, go to your room and read. You, you have to like invent creative projects. So I had the confidence of entertaining myself, basically. But I really think a lot of it comes from my father was an entrepreneur. So watching and, and not always successful as many entrepreneurs, you have to, you get knocked down, you have to keep getting back up. And I think that's the biggest lesson I saw from him. And I do think there's a fine line, like, I hope that I don't come across as super arrogant. But I also think that's something that women tend to apologize for when they shouldn't. Don't apologize for being good at something. Don't apologize for being competent. Be proud of it and use it as ammunition moving forward. I will definitely sometimes have ideas for something and I'll talk myself out of it. I'll say, oh, 10 other people are already doing it and they've done it this way. So what can I really add to the conversation? Or I'll say, nobody else is doing this. Maybe it's not a good idea. And I really try to self-monitor because I think that can be toxic thinking. And you're only doing a disservice to yourself. We are all our, our, our own worst enemy. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. We are. I love that. I love that you crystallized that you had this example of your father who was really just going for it and not letting the occasional failures stop him from continuing on this path. Because I think that's part of this uh, unpacking that feeling of not being confident and being afraid to go after the ideas that you have is that you're afraid of that failure and you're not sure what you would do if, if you get that failure. But then you had that incredible example of your dad who wasn't afraid of that and who kept going and also probably your mom too right artists have incredible freedom to express themselves and to express their ideas and so that probably was something useful as well uh yeah absolutely and my mom she's always been like my number one fan number one cheerleader very much if you put your mind to it you'll figure it out if you don't try you'll never know and I'd rather fail at something than have that question mark looming over me. Yes. So well said, Ashley. So well said. The other thing that comes to mind is that, uh, you know, one of those articles that says, hey, at the end of life, here's what people are regretting the most. And it's never about being safe, right? It's, it's never about keeping it small and pursuing a, a safe uh, path. A lot of times people regret not taking more risks and not going after something that was very close to their heart, but for one reason or another, that they hesitated. And so I think about that a lot as I get older and wiser as well, because as time speeds up, as it seems to do when you get older, it's what do I want to make sure that I do in this time that I have on this earth? And so I think that's yeah. a useful one to keep in mind as well. 
I, I think about that a lot too when I get stressed or upset about some minor thing that doesn't matter in the scheme of things. And it's like, on your deathbed, are you going to be thinking about this moment? Nope, you're not. So let it go now <laughs> and get out like on to the next thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So then you were in Philadelphia and you were getting all these experiences in the journalism sphere. And then you mentioned that you ended up moving to New York. Well, it wasn't quite that direct. And so what happened in between is I took a job in Cleveland. It was mm-hmm. in another alt weekly and it was a significant pay increase over what I was making, which was not much <laughs> to begin with, but <laughs> it was significant to me and significant enough to move out to Ohio from mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. And I actually quit that job after, I think it was less than two weeks. It was, oh, wow. yeah, it was definitely a blemish on my resume that I don't bring up, but I think it might be useful here, which is I knew the second I got out there, it was not a good fit. I just had this gut feeling that this was not the path I was supposed to be on. And I I don't think that I would have excised myself from the job in the inglorious way that I did nowadays. I'm too too, uh, professional for that. But that early in my career, I was just like, no, peace out. This is not right. And I moved to New York straight from there. My boyfriend, who I'd been dating since college, was living in New York at the time. And we'd actually broken up when I went to Cleveland. Mm. And I went there and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to find a job. And I was still so obsessed with Time Out New York. I just started saying, who do I know who may know someone who works there? And Mm -hmm. I was just networking furiously. And eventually, like an old editor-in-chief contact knew the talent recruiter at Hearst who had once interviewed someone at Time Out. And he was like, just email her. Tell her I sent you. And I did an informational interview and she didn't let on. There was no indication that there was a job there, no indication that they were going to be making any changes that would create new jobs. And I just pitched, I was like, this is what I want to be doing for you. I've been studying your magazine and reading it like crazy, even though I don't even live in New York. I was like, whatever it is I need to learn for this job, I will do it. And I got a job there. And that was my first job in New York. I started as an associate features editor there. And I had uh, an incredible mentor there who I still consider a mentor to this day. I stayed there maybe three and a half years. And I think I had four promotions while I was there. So by the time I left, I was there. I don't know even what the title was. Editor at large, maybe. I redid their shopping and style section. I redid their around town section, which became on the city. I did a lot of, edited a lot of feature packages, started doing a lot of web stuff because you know, we were still at the point where print weighed more, carried more weight than web. Mm-hmm. But eventually I left there and I went to New York Magazine and then bounced around from back and forth from New York Magazine. I was at Bon Appetit for a while. And then in 2014, I left Bon Appetit to travel full time, which kind of brings me up to where we are today. Amazing. And I, I want to make sure that we unpack okay. <laughs> all, all of the incredible travels that you've been in the past six years or so since you fully entered the travel space. But I have some questions about what you just said about your time in Time Out and uh, New York Magazine. First, was there some things that come to mind immediately when you think about what your incredible mentor has told you over the years that you could perhaps share with us? that has helped you as you were building your career in that moment? So his name was Michael. And I think that he taught me 
again, it was just this idea. If you can dream it, nothing is stopping you from executing it. Timeout was a place of fantastic freedom. It was a weekly magazine. So that may have been part of it. You, you can't dwell too long on things. At monthly magazines, people tend to redo the same story 18 times because they have the <laughs> leisure to do so. You don't have that luxury at weeklies. You have to make decisions, you have to be decisive and you have to live with those decisions. He could look at a layout. And this also was the same at New York Magazine with Adam Moss, the editor-in-chief there, could just look at something and know exactly what was wrong with it and exactly how to fix it. And you could have been, you can't see the forest from the trees sometimes when you're working on a section as an editor or you're writing a story. And then someone else just comes along and is like, oh, do this and this. And you're like, oh my God, like I have wasted hours thinking about this thing or didn't even realize it was wrong because I've had my head in the sand. Mm -hmm. So I think that eye, that just that editorial eye of being able to look at something and know how to make it better. And not every mm -hmm. editor has that. Like I've definitely worked with and known editors, and I hope that I'm not one myself, but who just, they're, I call them fingerprints editors, and they just want to like muck everything up and like get their fingerprints all over it. And they don't necessarily make it better. They just make it theirs. Right. And I, I've had those experiences as well, for sure. What I actually want to say is to freelance um, writers and journalists who are working with editors, and, and this is something that actually has taken me quite a while to understand and accept. So I, I want to share this in hopes that it can help someone else. It's understanding the job of an editor and the job of editor at large is to put together a body of work that is cohesive from beginning to end and that is in line with what the magazine is trying to achieve as a whole and so sometimes you can send in a great story a great idea that would not be accepted and would be rejected and I think oftentimes we or well, I for sure <laughs> I, I used to I'm, I'm working on it but I used to really take that personally right and immediately you judge yourself and you take your work as an extension of yourself and that's just such a heavy place to be in and that precludes you from being prolific with your work and if we can learn to separate ourselves from the stories and the ideas that we send out there and if we can recognize that most of the times when our ideas get rejected it has nothing to do with the idea itself or it's not a judgment on the idea it's because there's this big mechanism that's at work when an editor and an editorial team is putting together a magazine. It's, it's about the whole package and how it's coming together and what's the vision for the magazine. And yeah, there's just a lot to consider there. Once you understand that, I feel like it's much easier for you to process those inevitable rejections, you know, and all of those things and, and move forward. Yeah, I, I think that's incredibly important. It's something that I tell anyone... Um who is an aspiring freelancer or already out there in the trenches, there's just so much information you're not getting when you get a rejection. And that's because most editors at this point in particular are just spread too thin to really break down all the reasons that idea didn't work for a publication. It very rarely is that your idea is terrible. There are terrible ideas out there. <laughs> but so often, I mean, they could already have something similar in a lineup. They're, that could be a weird quirk of the editor-in-chief or an executive editor. Or they just don't like X type of stories. Mm -hmm. um, it could be, I, I think, one thing that I've seen so many great story ideas get killed over is the art and photo team doesn't like it. 
And that more than ever now in this Instagram era where it's visuals first, they wield a lot of control and a lot of power. And if they don't believe in the visual potential of your story, it's dead in the water at a lot of publications. And that as, as, an, as someone who's been both writer and editor is insanely frustrating. At the same time, I also get it because I have to think visually too for a lot of the social media work I do. And how are these stories going to translate to a digital audience versus a print audience? There's just so many issues at play and, and people, you have to be really persistent. And especially now that freelance budgets have been iced in so many places, um, especially now that staffs are whittled down to skeletal teams. Um, you before had people already doing two or three people's jobs. Now they might be doing four or five. So it, it's tough, but like if you, if you know in your heart that your idea is good, it's a matter of finding the right outlet, the right publication, and one that will pay you fairly for it. I love that you say that. And coming from an editor, it's incredible to hear that, that idea of being paid fairly. If you've been in the industry for a while, you know all these kind of horror stories of really low pays for really high amount of work. And it's definitely tough. So I, I just love so much that you brought that up as well. And what you said about this idea of thinking visually for, the, for this age of incessant social media that we're in, that kind of actually brings me to my second question that I had about this, which was you went through that uh, incredible turmoil, right? When, when the magazine industry first transitioned from mostly print to this digital space in which it's like a wild west of publishing. So are there some things that you've learned in that transition? Yeah, it's tough. I think a lot of people still glorify print. And I get that. It feels like you're creating something that you can hold in your hands that can live on a shelf. And I still do quite a bit of print work, but I love writing for digital. <laughs> I love how fast it is, how you don't have to come up with an idea. Like how do you right now pitch a magazine that is coming out in January, February, 2021? Like what? Like we don't even know what is going to happen next week in this crazy country, in this crazy world let alone know what the environment's going to be six months from now. So I really love the immediacy of digital. I'm not a news writer. I'm not one of those news hounds that's like firing off six stories a day in response to every little thing that happens. But I do love that I can report a story now and have it live within two or three weeks. I would say that if you're looking for mentors and you're looking for that sort of line editing and feedback, you don't get that as much in digital. Very often I file pieces and other than maybe getting trimmed down or heads index changes, it publishes online the way that I filed it. Whereas print stories go through so much more massaging, so many more editors weighing in on it, photo and art teams telling you, no, we, we need this <laughs> photo to be three quarter at a page. So what was assigned at 700 words suddenly shrinks to 250. I definitely, I, they're just totally different skill sets. And I think a lot of magazines have done a good job of breaking down the wall between web and print, but the teams still aren't thoroughly integrated. You still have dedicated print people, dedicated web people. And, and unfortunately, the rates haven't followed. And I think that's a huge problem. You still have writers earning two, sometimes three dollars, uh, five if they're a really big name, a word for print magazines, and then web people being told, oh, we pay three cents a word. And it's like, no, because the amount of work is the same and the quality of the writers is often the same. 
And that to me is infuriating and something you have to buck and goes back again to this idea. If you don't demand your worth, no one's going to give it to you. And I totally get, especially new writers feeling like they just need to get clips and they just want to get their name out there. So they write for next to nothing, but it does undercut the value of the entire business and everything we do. And when people get accustomed to thinking they get something for free or get it for cheap, we're dismantling our own business and livelihood. So charge, charge your work. <laughs> I love that, Ashley. I love so much that you brought this up because this is a huge issue for so many people, especially for women. This is a hard issue, right? To be asking your worth and to believe that you have intrinsic value that you can ask to be paid accordingly for. This was a big thing that I have been working on for the past four years, because when I was starting out, I was definitely one of those people that no matter what, I will take it if it's three cents a word, like you said. And it's an evolution and it's a journey, I think, to to start believing that you are worth being paid more. I think we all have to demand uh, better pay, but at the same time, it's hard to do that when your mindset and your own internal beliefs are not there yet to be able to ask for that. I've met a lot of women who are struggling with that and who don't even have that internal belief that they're able to ask for more. Now, when I'm working with editors and when I'm pitching stories, before what I would used to do is when they would come back to me with their rates, I would just always take it no matter what it was. And now when, you know, when the editor sends you, okay, we'll take your story. Here's the budget. Here's what we can do. I always ask them, well, here's my usual rate. Can you meet that? You know, and there is a way to do that. That's polite and professional, but it's taken me four years to get to this point. So I guess what I'm trying to say that it's a journey. It's, it's an evolution. Uh, And if somebody's not able to ask for their worth right away, there's some things that they need to work through first in order to get there. Absolutely. And I don't mean, it's not like I was writing $2 a word stories out of college, not at all. Like I used to write for um, Bitch Magazine and Punk Planet. And like, I'm not even sure I ever got paid. I probably did, but it would be like $5 for a feature story or something. Um, It definitely comes with time. It comes with experience. It comes with getting your name out. It, It comes with building relationships with editors. So They know your work. They know the quality of your reporting. They know you're going to turn it in on time. They know it'll be clean. It'll be factually correct. Your whole goal as a freelancer is to like make your editor's life easier. If, and I think not enough people just, that's worth paying for. It it really is. And and my dad always said to me, he's, you can get it done well, or you can get it done cheap, but you can't get both. And I say a version of that to places and I do walk away from projects that I really want to do because I don't think that they're fairly compensated. And mm-hmm. it that's a hard thing to do when it when we're in a depression and a pandemic yes. in the middle of 2020. Um, but you have to know your own value and stand by it. And, and I find that for the most part, people respond to that. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, she must be good then. <laughs> yes. And, and very oftentimes they will come back with a counter offer. It may not be exactly what you want, but it'll definitely better be better than what it was. 
Yes, exactly. And that's that's what's been happening to me as well lately, which is so exciting. I just want to just comment real quick on what you said about making an editor's life easier. I, I love that you said that because the people who are listening and who have taken my courses will be laughing right now because this is exactly what I say in all of my courses and all of the work that I do on Genius Women is that, guys, you have to understand how tricky the editor's job is and how overwhelmed and swamped they are most of the time right now. And so if there is a way you can make their job easier, this is in a way, this is your assignment too, right? You, you, yes, you have to bring them great stories that fit with their magazine and with the vision and all of that. But if you can make their job easier, even just a little bit, then that's, that's what they're looking for. And they'll be so grateful to you for that because it is a hard job. It's, it's a hard job that, that a job of an editor in 2020. Yeah. And it's the little things too. Like, you know, you're already deep in the weeds on your story. If you can come up with some heads and decks, just throw like five head ideas and, a, and write a great deck. When you know if it's a web story and you know they're going to need to hyperlink 12 different things in your story, put in the hyperlinks. Don't make them go hunting for that stuff. Make it as seamless as possible and make yourself indispensable. When I think of Yulia, I'm like, okay, this is not going to take up half a day of having to rewrite someone. I just know it'll be good. It'll be clean. It'll be factually correct. That's what you want an editor to think about when they hear your name. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just for clarification, heads and decks are... Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I can explain that. So a head is a headline on a story. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the deck is usually the bit of copy... um, that runs underneath it. It's it, it, in some magazines that don't have a lot of display copy, which is the main uh, copy you read on the page before you get to the body copy, which really jumps into a story. It might be really short. It could be a one sentence deck. Some places do longer decks could be two or three and sometimes even a deep paragraph to set up the story ahead. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, I want to get into the travel part because that's <laughs> especially right now, you know, we, we all want to travel vicariously through you. So tell us, you know, six years ago or so, you went into the travel space for the most part. And how has that been? How has that job been for you? It's amazing. It's the best job in the world. It's not always as glamorous as people think, for sure. But I basically, I'm someone who's always loved travel. And for the longest time early in my career, didn't really have the money to go anywhere. It was a big deal to be able to go to Cape May, New Jersey for the weekend from Philadelphia. Like I was earning no money working in all weeklies, but I I always had that hunger and craving to see as much of the world as I could. And eventually as my salaries got higher as an editor in New York, I could start taking vacations, but then I was driven nuts by the fact that, oh, you get 10 days, or if I could negotiate up to 15 days vacation, you're going to lose two of it. Just like if I wanted to go to Japan or wanted to go, you're going to lose so much time traveling and then you get there and it just never felt like enough time. And I just kind of went stir crazy. I felt like I'd done the New York chapter and there was so much more that I wanted to see. So I left my job. I was special projects editor at Bon Appetit at the time. And I left my job to travel full time. And my partner, I coerced him into coming with me. He was already a freelancer, but definitely more of a homebody, not as adventurous when it comes to travel um, as I was, but he was willing and that's all I needed. (laughs) And originally I was like, let's just travel for two months and two months became four months, became six months, became four years. And I think having worked in the industry for 
so long. I, I already had a lot of contacts. So when I decided to do this, I had already established relationships with a lot of editors that then I could pitch stories to. So I'd been writing at that point in 2014, I'd been writing for Connie Nash Traveler already for like four or five years. So that was like a natural segue. I was still doing a lot for Bon Appetit. I could still do things for New York Magazine. I used to edit their weddings issues and I always wrote the honeymoon stories. So that was something that tied into travel. But I'd also, I saved up a lot of money to be able to travel full time without having to constantly freelance that first year on the road. So yes. that first, yeah, so that first year we did 17 countries in Asia and then we spent about 6 weeks in Australia and then came back to the US for a while. We did maybe 7 months of a US road trip and hit a bunch of different states and we went back to Bangkok and lived in Bangkok for a while and used that as a base to keep exploring Asia and then came back to the US and finished off that US road trip which in total Let's see, we visited over 16 months, 40 states, and 229 cities. Wow. <laughs> and that's how we wow. found Minneapolis. That's incredible. And you decided to base in Minneapolis. What were some of the things that draw, have drawn you to that city? Yeah, it was, well, it's the Twin Cities. So St. Paul's right next door. So it was two cities, like two awesome cities in one, two cities for the mm -hmm. price of one. It just, we loved gosh, everything, the green spaces, the parks, the, the restaurant and food scene here was incredible. Um, it was a really supportive scene, a lot of small makers and business, like loads of independently owned businesses that were all really supportive of one another. The quality of life, I think was really good. What you would get for your money compared to some of the places we'd considered living like Los Angeles and New York City, you had a better quality of life for the amount of money. It wasn't cheap, by any means, I think there's this notion people on the East and West Coast have that everything in the Midwest costs $4 a month, <laughs> and that's definitely not the case. Um, you still have to hustle, but you just got more in return for that hustling. And I think the biggest thing, we live 12 minutes from MSP the mm -hmm. airport, and it's an amazing airport. Definitely my favorite in the U.S. And oh, wow. before the pandemic, I could get pretty much anywhere I needed to go from here. That's amazing. Have you ever considered uh, doing an international base or, for example, staying in Bangkok or some other cities? Or was it always about returning back to the U.S.? No, we, d we definitely would in a heartbeat. We'd lived about nine months in Bangkok during that period, exhausted all of our visa extensions that we could for the time being. Um, you know, my parents are still in the U.S. My partner's parents are in the U.S., but obviously with FaceTime and now with the pandemic, when you can't even visit people who are over the age of 70 safely, mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter where we are. We do love the Twin Cities. We love Minnesota, but I could certainly see ourselves popping up in anywhere, especially now that more and more of the work can be done remotely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I want to get into kind of the current moment in a little bit, but Let's give our uh, listeners a little bit of that wanderlust. We have Ashley Halpern in the room. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. So tell us in that world, whirlwind tour of the world, what were some of the most incredible destinations that took your breath away? Oh, God. <laughs> so many to list. Um, certainly when people ask about, people are always asking me, oh, your favorite place in the world. The place that we return to again and again is Japan for sure. And particularly, I love Kyushu in southern Japan, Fukuoka, 
We love Sapporo and Hokkaido. I was supposed to go to Okinawa this year for a story. And obviously, along with everything else, that was canceled. I was supposed to go to Japan too. For you. Oh, heartbreak. <laughs> one, but one of my favorite places I visited most recently was Uzbekistan. And I there's just so much I want to see in Central Asia and also the Caucasus and Eastern Europe. There's just, God, I just want to go everywhere. Like, and this is really painful right now um, because you would think that the more places you go, that you would somehow scratch that itch. And my mom's always like, when are you going to settle down? When are you going to stop traveling so much? And it is like, never, never, never stop. The more places you go, the more places, the less you know about the world and the more you want to see. Absolutely. I love that. I, I agree. It's the same. It's the same for me. I think it's the same for many people who are passionate about the world, right? It's like uh, the, the more you know, the more you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the other thing for me too, I've noticed lately is that I love returning to places too. I'm making connections. I'm establishing friends and communities in some of those places. And I, I want to keep returning there as well. So it's not only about covering the whole world and seeing the new places, but also returning to places that I've been in love with. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think just establishing those when you work in this field, the kind of global friendships that you establish, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. And social media has been, for all of its ills, and there are many, has been incredible in introducing me to people I never would have otherwise met. I feel like I have friends around the world because of social media. And if you can get past the like FOMO and all the ugliness sometimes in it, there's incredible relationships to be built through those platforms. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love how hopeful your take on social media is. I I just love (laughs) love that. My mom always says that she should have named me Polly because I'm uh, obnoxiously optimistic about everything. <laughs> you have to be right now. Yeah, you do. I mean, what, what are you going to do? If you stop and think too much about it, like you'll never leave the house again. Like, no. <laughs> so that actually brings me to this question. What are you hopeful about right now in this moment in the fall of 2020 when obviously it feels like, um, well, it doesn't feel like it is, you know, our, our, our world is on fire, literally and figuratively in so many ways. So what's, what are you hopeful for right now? I'm certainly hopeful for the election, that mm-hmm. there's a change in administration. I think that it will be brutally close. I think that it will not go uncontested. <laughs> the current admin will not go out easily. I'm hopeful that if we have a change in administration, that there can be healing in the country. I I think just having a a leader who doesn't try to start fights and then masquerade as a firefighter is so important. Someone who, and there was something in Biden's, uh, one of his recent speeches, I think it was at the DNC, just saying like, I'm here to represent all of America. And that hasn't been the case for the last four years. Uh, You know, Trump just only stands up for his own base. He doesn't, whatever, I won't go off on that tangent. But, but, uh, you know, I'm just hopeful that we can move forward from this, that with a new administration, a vaccine, and there'll be national mandates around healthcare and what we need to do to get out of this, that there'll be better funding for small businesses, for uh, the unemployed, for everyone whose life and career is hanging in the balance right now. 
And if we can start to move forward from this, and obviously I want to see travel come back. And I would like travel to be more intentional on the other side. I want, I hope people have taken this time to really evaluate what their priorities are with travel, what makes travel meaningful to them, and to not just do it willy-nilly, but really think about the kinds of trips they want to take and the sort of people they want to meet and support on them. I think there's a real opportunity for intentionality here. Yes, I love that you said that, Ashley, because that's, I think we in the past decade have gotten, maybe even longer than that, have gotten into this pattern of viewing travel as a consumerist undertaking. You go and you consume yep. what is there for you. And I, I agree with you that this is a moment for us to really reconsider that approach, right? And understand that as travelers with disposable income, we have so much power. And so being more aware of the impact that we leave there and, and what can we do to better that place and not get it closer to, to a worse situation. I think that's just so, so important. And I think a lot more people now are considering that. And so that's, that's hopeful. Yeah. Travel is a privilege. Absolutely. And that's why I say in some ways, it just feels like the luckiest job in the world. And that's the thing about travel. I've met so many people and sometimes you don't even hear what a jerk you sound like. You'll be like, oh, have you ever been to the US or have you ever been here asking people? And they're like, I've never been to the capital of my own country. Yeah. And you realize just how disgustingly privileged you are to be having this conversation with this person. And I like those reality checks. I like that check on perspective. And it's something that I try to bring back to my own life and be like, is this crisis really a crisis or am I just making it one because that's what we're trained to do in this country? Is there a broader perspective I can apply to this? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I love that you're saying that. And it's interesting because that's that I, I feel like this is a conversation for a whole other episode uh, where I absolutely uh agree with what, what you said however I also think that it's a privilege but it's also a necessity in some way because it's like what other means can help you expand your perspectives and your horizon in yeah. such a deep way right yeah. mm -hmm. um, and, and how can we get the world closer to a place where more people are given that opportunity to have that type of an experience you know but yeah, it's a big subject, <laughs> <laughs> one we could explore for a while, for sure. So what are you working on right now? You mentioned at the beginning that there are so many stories that you're filing right now, um, which is incredible to hear. Is there something in particular that you're super excited about? I had a story published actually just right before I got on this call that I worked really hard on. And it's for Connie Nast Traveler, and it's about the future of study abroad which when I pitched it, I just didn't realize how many people are impacted by that and what a big story it is. And if you think about it, study abroad sits at the intersection of higher education and travel, both of which have absolutely been decimated in the mm -hmm. pandemic. Um, so that was really fascinating. And my editor, bless her heart, like <laughs> definitely gave me an extra probably 800 or 1,000 words than I was supposed to file. And uh, But it's still such a bigger story. I'm also working on one right now that's due about second passports, Americans who are suddenly realizing um, that their once powerful passport actually isn't opening so many doors anymore. And 
So they are seeking other means of getting one, whether it's citizenship by investment or citizenship through um, marriage, through fast track naturalization. There's all these different paths. So that's another piece I'm working on. I definitely look forward to one day being able to do destination stories again, where you actually go somewhere and write about that experience. But for now, it's a little more flying at 30,000 feet looking at the industry. Yes. Yes, it's very, I, 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 I repeat this because I've already said this, but it's so, so hopeful to hear that even in this true crisis for the industry, there are stories to be told and there are opportunities uh, to be had as long as we're able to kind of um, make adjustments and seek out stories that are relevant right now and that need to be told right now. Uh, and so do you have any advice for women who are just starting out on this path now in this crazy year and have aspirations to break into the travel industry or the journalism industry at large? Any advice you have besides don't get in? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think um, no no one should be fooled to think that this is a super stable or lucrative career because it's not for most people. And I also do a lot of commercial content work. Some of that is far better paid than traditional editorial. That's just two hats that most people I know in this industry wear now. Um, so I do think being open-minded to all the different ways that your skill set can be used is important. Look, if you want to be a hard news reporter for the New York Times, then then chase that dream. But if you want to be freelance, it's a little harder to do strictly editorial and make any real lucrative kind of money. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you're just starting out, find a niche. That's the most important thing. And if you can be even more specific than just travel. Oh, I want to do travel, right? Mm -hmm. What is it about travel that you really love? Are you obsessed with planes? Are you obsessed with points and mileage collecting? Are you obsessed with cruising? Are you obsessed with uh, environmental and eco-friendly places? Like figure out what, are you obsessed with pets, traveling with pets? If you can develop a niche and become known for that, I think that's one of the easiest ways to break in now. And you start by, you have to have some published work that an editor can look at. You can send them the best idea in the world. They're going to want to see your style of writing. They're going to want to get a sense for your voice. So even if that means launching your own platform or setting up a Medium account or Substack or whatever it is you want to do, um, have those what we call clips. They used to be actual printed clips, but now digital is completely fine and frankly easier. No one wants to like download your uh, nine, 9 billion gigabyte attachments. Um, so to develop a niche and just who cares if people say no, don't ever not pitch someplace because you're afraid they're going to say no. So what if they say no? Okay, on to the next thing. Like just keep for, for every, I would say for every 20 pitches I put out in the world, maybe two get assigned. Yes. yes. So what? I don't take it personally. It's just how it goes. And you have to be really, if anything, it can be exhausting. The idea generation It's kind of part just part of the game that we're all playing but a lot of times the pitches you come up with you can repurpose somewhere else so if you believe in something never let it just die on the vine keep searching for that right home it's out there you just have to find it oh ashley i love that so much so much <laughs> 
And this is also the advice that I give in the courses that I teach and all of the work that we're doing, exactly what you're saying, right? Keep pitching, keep finding home for your ideas, keep believing, uh, believing in what you have to say, because at the end of the day, you are the maker of your own destiny and your own career and your own dream. As long as you keep pushing for it and keep being consistent and persistent with this work, it's going to happen. Yeah. And I've also told, you know, some, some publications I work for that will go unnamed, but I'm sure you can guess, <laughs> Yulia, uh, are, are more difficult sometimes for freelancers to break into. But I really respond to and root for writers that don't give up. Like, yes. it, because I will try to find a way to get them in. And if none of their ideas are sticking for whatever stupid internal machinations that they don't need to know about, I will have an idea that we generate in-house that I want to assign out. I'm going to think of that writer because I'm going to be like, they're dogged, they're hungry, like they want this work and I want to work with them. So I do think that your persistence without being too annoying, like do know your limits, (laughs) can, can pay off for writers. Yes, I love that. And and by the way, guys, Ashley is incredible to work with. And I've had the honor of working with her and just loved every minute of it. Uh, and to, to, add to your point, if you're persistent and you keep reaching out and keep sending your ideas in, editors notice that. And like you said, they're going to keep you in mind for uh, appropriate moments and appropriate assignments. So that's super important. And so, you know, I love... <laughs> what you've shared with us about your story, your career, your confidence and your brilliance and the work that you're doing. And I always want to close with this particular question, which is a big question, but let's see how you would start thinking about this question right now. What do you think it means uh, to be a woman who is stepping into her brilliance and her confidence fully today? That is a big one. I think that the whole world is full of roadblocks, and even more so for women. But you just have to mow that stuff over. And I definitely just used a word there that (laughs) wasn't the word I wanted to say to keep it clean. Like, you just imagine yourself in one of those big monster trucks that they have at like Trump rallies. Oh my God. <laughs> just like knocking things out of the way. Like you can get through this. You're equipped to get through this. And your hesitation is just stalling. You're just stalling. And so just power through. And you may have to swerve along the way. You may have to like take out a fire hydrant or whatever else they take out on Grand Theft Auto and like (laughs) to get to that other side. But I I think determination, gumption, drive, it goes really far in life. And you can learn a lot of the skills along the way. Raw talent is certainly important, but drive is more important. And just, just imagine yourself in this giant truck with those giant wheels and you will plow through what you have to plow through to get where you want to go. Gosh, I love that. <laughs> I can't believe I just use a monster truck metaphor. <laughs> that is so off brand. <laughs> uh, no, but I can totally, I actually totally can see you in that <laughs> somewhere in the roads. I think that's it, Ashley. I think that's it. And you just nailed 
I think the one ingredient that is crucial for success in the world today or ever is that drive and determination. And yeah, we need to have it in order to make any kind of progress in life on any kind of issues that we want to work on, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think we're so often kind of, to go back to my lame metaphor, like putting the vehicle in reverse, we like put it in reverse, we back up, we're not sure about where we should go. And sometimes you just have to like gun it. And if you crash, okay, you get out of the car and you find another vehicle, (laughs) then you keep going. I love that. I love that. I think we're gonna uh, leave it right here. I think we're gonna leave it right here. And (laughs) no more monster trucks. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ashley. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for spending your valuable time with me today. I hope this episode was super helpful to you. And if so, please consider subscribing to our show so you never miss an episode. And if you're a new listener, thank you so much for checking out the show. And don't forget, you can find all the resources, links, and show notes over at GeniusWomen.com. That's women with an X. So if there was something you wanted to check out, you can always, always find it over at GeniusWomen.com. That's women spelled as W-O-M-X-N. Thank you so much again, and I'll see you next time where we have a conversation with the founder of El Camino Travel, Catalina Mayorga.